So good morning again. Uh, let me just begin by making a confession. I don't know about you, but I'm actually not a, a huge fan of the spring season. Uh, and that's because I struggle significantly with allergies during this time of the year. You know, while most people enjoy the, enjoy the, the smell of freshly cut grass and, and flowers blooming, it causes me to be reaching for my EpiPen right, every time, this, this time of the year. I mean, no joke, I was at John Korean's office. He's an allergist who goes to our church, and they gave me an allergy test for like 50 different things that are in the environment, right? So they kind of plop it onto your arm and they test you out. Well, I came back positive for 48 of them. <laughs> who does that, right? Well, how is that possible? I was, I was positive for 48. In fact, they tested me again for the two things that I wasn't positive for, and I'm actually allergic to those things as well. So I'm, I'm betting 100 here, right? It's, it's amazing. And so I sat there in John's office with this swollen arm, and I remember John walking into the office and saying, listen, listen, bud, uh, I think your best option is to get allergy shots, right? And so he explained to me what shots are. He said, essentially, they inject small doses of the things that you're allergic to into your body. Right? And so that over time, those things that, that had an effect on me once would no longer bother me at all. Right? Those things that were in, you know, tearing my life apart at once would no longer bother me at all. Over time, I would become desensitized to this thing. So now why do I mention this? I mention this because as I was getting ready to preach this sermon this week, I felt like some of us could say the same thing about the passage that we are about to read this morning. I mean, we have read and heard and sang and preached and discussed time and time again about the death of Christ so much that it can feel like those shots. I mean, it's possible that this thing that at one point in our life had such an immense effect on who we are and how we thought and how we lived can now have very little effect. We're not even bothered by it at all. Maybe we've been injected with this truth so much that we have become desensitized. If we were to be honest, even just admitting that sounds horrible. I mean, it sounds blasphemous, right? How could anybody even say that? But I think it is very much the truth for some of us. Some of us have become so overly familiar with the death of Christ that we are no longer affected by it like we once were. I mean, we can speak of it, and we would say, intellectually, we would agree with it, for sure. But we're not moved by it. As I say that, as I was thinking about that throughout this week, for you and for me, I want to say, how can that be, Right? How is that a possibility? How can we look or consider the, the death of Jesus on the cross and it somehow has become old news? Or, or how could I consider my Savior on the cross and not be moved by what I am seeing? You know, I was talking to Sarah Enslin, who goes to this church uh, about a week ago, and I found out that she was heading out to the Grand Canyon to go hike 50 miles. That's crazy to me. I, I don't even walk around my neighborhood. It's too long, right? But she went to the Grand Canyon to hike 50 miles, and I also discovered that this is actually her third trip doing that, right? So when I heard that, I asked her, listen, does it ever get old, right? I mean, do you ever look out onto the canyon and feel less impressed? And she immediately looked at me, and she said, nope, nope, there's no way, right? It's amazing every time. 
And I feel like that's the tension that we find ourselves in this morning. As we gaze again this morning at the cross of Christ, we can either approach this as just a, another shot in the arm, or we can ask God to help us see that we are actually standing in front of the Grand Canyon. We're standing in the front of the Grand Canyon. How can we stand here and not feel impressed? But the truth is, we can't manufacture that kind of thing, right? I can't make myself feel something. I can't even make you feel something just by being up here preaching, right? We can't make ourselves believe something. God needs to do it. And so it is right for us to pray and to ask God, would you do that for me? Would you help me so that as I look to your word, as I look to what your son has done for me on the cross, that I would not feel like this is old news, but that I would be touched by it once again. Would you pray with me as we seek the Lord out? Pray with me. Our Lord, you are worthy of much more honor and praise and worship than we know. So would you use your word by the help of your Holy Spirit to help our eyes to see things that maybe we haven't seen in a while, maybe to hear things that maybe we have never even heard, for our hearts to believe things that maybe we are slow to believe even in this moment. And would you show us how precious the death of Christ really is? And we would say, we can't do that on our own. There's no way for us to manufacture it. Unless you do it, Lord, it can't be done. So would you help us even in this hour so that would become a reality for us, so that it would be for your glory and for our good. And so we ask it in your son's name. Amen. So let's dig right up into the, into the scriptures again. We'll open up uh, on Mark 15. It's the passage that Daniel read to us. It's on page 853. And I would definitely tell you, open up your Bible, keep your Bible open. We'll read through it together and we'll consider it together. God's word is powerful, so we should look at God's word together. And so we're in Mark 15, 33 to 39, on page 853, and this is what it says. It says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, wait, let, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he had breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There's a lot going on in these seven verses that we're looking at together this morning, but I want to start off by just making one important point, and that's this. That this is the moment for which everything in the universe was planned. This is the moment for which everything in the universe was planned. This is the moment that heaven and earth has been anxiously waiting since page two of your Bible. This is the moment that heaven and earth has been anxiously waiting since the beginning of the Bible. It's the, moments that, it's the moment that would first be announced, even in veiled language in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. It's the moment that every law in the Bible was preparing us for. 
It's the moment that every prophet in the Bible was anxiously anticipating. It's the moment that every sacrifice in the Bible was pointing us to. It's the moment that was in the works, the scripture says, before the foundation of the world. You see, this is it. These seven verses that we just read, this is it. This is the main event of main events. Would you hear that? Right? Would you let that, the enormity of this moment sink into you? There's nothing greater. Other things have been said. Other things have been spoken. This is it. This is what we've been anxiously waiting for. It, it sort of reminds me of, of pay-per-view events, especially when I was growing up. I used to watch Tyson fights all the time. I don't know if you did or not, but I used to watch Tyson fights. And so how Tyson fights worked were, you know, it would be like four hours of a broadcast, right? But all of it was sort of building up to one moment, but what do they do? For the first three and a half hours, they would show you clip after clip, like 20 clips uh, kind of explaining the story of these fighters and, and, and of this fight. So they tell us about the fighters' lives, their backgrounds, or they tell us about their struggles and their accomplishments. So they talk about the wins and the losses that they've had, or they'll tell us uh, uh, you know, information about this particular fight and, and why it's so significant. And as you watch these clips over the course of these three and a half hours, it's like your anticipation is just growing, right? You're getting more and more excited about what is about to happen. And all of these details that you're hearing help to make this fight all the more meaningful. And then finally, when you get to the ring, the stage is set. They thought through everything. I mean, they thought about the lights and the colors and the sounds that you hear. And all of it is set up to perfectly communicate what is about to happen. All of it is getting us ready for this one moment, the main event. Well, you see, it's like the Bible has been building up to this moment for thousands of years now, right? Through innumerable people and countless stories and, and all sorts of details, God has been getting us ready for this very moment. And as he thought about how to set the stage, about the colors and the lights that he would use. It was as though the only thing that could remotely convey the magnitude of this moment was actually darkness. No colors, no lights, just pitch black. And when you consider that, you wanna say, what in the world? This is the main event, why would you turn off the lights now? This is the main event. We've been leading up to this moment for thousands of years. Why would you turn out the lights now? Well, let's consider. We'll look at verse 33. And just to give you a heads up, we'll be in this one verse for the majority of this sermon. So don't get freaked out, okay? So we're looking at verse 33. It says this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. You see, by now, Jesus has actually been on the cross for nearly three hours already, right? And we heard last week, he's been enduring moment after moment, hour after hour, all the ridicule and the shame of the people who were standing there and they were walking by. But right now, Jesus was about to die for the sins of the world. And you see, there weren't any bright lights in that moment. There wasn't any brilliant colors to showcase this moment. No, instead, God saw it fit for Jesus to die in the utter dark. Consider that. 
It's the sixth hour, the text says. In other words, it's right around noontime at this point. And that that means is that this is when the, the sun should be at its peak, right? It's the brightest hour of the day, but instead of displaying this main event, this moment under the blazing sun, God flips the switch and he covers the entire land in darkness. It was pitch black. I, I mean, can't see your hand in front of your face sort of black. Jesus was about to go through his darkest hour, literally in the dark. And the text says that it would remain that way until the ninth hour, till 3 p.m. And when you realize that, you want to say, why? Right? If we were planning any event, we wouldn't get to the actual event and then finally turn off the lights. Right? Why would we do that? We've been anxiously awaiting for this moment. Why would there be darkness in this very moment? Well, you see, I think it communicates to us something about this moment. Consider this. 33 years earlier, right, there were bright lights and loud screaming and worship in the middle of the night when the Savior was born at midnight. But now, 33 years later, there was utter darkness and pin drop silence in the middle of the day when the Savior is about to die. And that's because the Bible uses darkness to communicate something specific. In the scriptures, darkness is repeatedly used as a sign of God's judgment. In fact, in Genesis 15, is, will be one of the times we first see it, right? Genesis 15, we see God coming in darkness to announce judgment to Abraham. Or we'll see it in Exodus 10, if you remember the story of the plagues, right? Where the ninth plague was when darkness covered the land of Egypt, right? Right before the, the Passover lamb would be slain. Or we'll see the prophets talk about it. For example, Amos, the prophet Amos, would talk about it in ch chapter 8. Listen to what he says about the day of the Lord or the day of judgment. It says this, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun. Do you hear that? Do you just hear that prophecy? It sounds a lot like what's exactly happening in this moment. Well, you see, there's tons of examples just like that. But what we see time and time again is that God uses darkness to describe his horrific judgment. And that's why we shouldn't miss the point that's being made here. You see, the skies turned black because the judge of the world was about to execute judgment. The skies turned black because the judge of the world was about to execute judgment. Now listen, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you hear that and you would be like, that's right, that's right, go get them, right? I mean, judge the Romans for crucifying Jesus in this way. This is horrific. Or somebody would say, that's right, judge the Jews for that mockery of a trial. They didn't have anything to judge him on, but they did it anyway. Judge them. Or they would say, you know what, judge the scoffers and the people that, that screamed out horrific things to Jesus as he was on the cross. There's plenty of people to judge. Judge them. That's right. This is the moment to do it. But no, it wouldn't be any of them. Instead, in this moment, God was about to execute judgment on his son. God was about to execute judgment on his son. For in this moment, 
God is angry with his son. God is angry with his son. You know, when you hear that, you should be saying, what in the world? I mean, are we reading the same story here? Why is God angry with his son? He hasn't done anything at all. I mean, there's all these people around him that are worthy of judgment. Why is God angry with his son in this moment? I mean, isn't this God's only son, which at the baptism he said, I have so much pleasure in my son. Wasn't this the one whom he loved? The one he delighted in? Wasn't this God's son who obeyed him perfectly? Who always did his will? No matter what was going on, he was committed to doing his will. And we would say, yup. That same son. But for the next three hours, the next three hours, that very son would be the object of God's horrific judgment. You see, the darkness that covers the land is meant to prepare us for the darkness that will soon cover the soul of your Savior. That's what it's pointing us to. You know, for weeks now, we've been witnessing Jesus being physically tormented, right? He's been beaten and scourged, and his body's been ripped up into shreds. We've been watching it and feeling it for the last several weeks, and yet we would say what we need to understand is that nothing done to his body will compare to what is about to be done to his soul. Nothing done to his body will even measure up, right? Doesn't even compare to what is about to be done to his soul because Jesus is about to endure God's horrific judgment. What does that even mean? Well, it means a few things. First, it means that Jesus would bear our sins upon himself. Jesus would bear our sins upon himself. In this moment, the sins of innumerable sinners would be placed upon Christ. And all of a sudden, he would be liable for the things that we have done. He would become liable for the things that we have done. How do we know this? Because 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Or or Isaiah 53, 6 says this, All we like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, we have turned, every one of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity or the sin of us all. And you you see, just so that this doesn't end up being just some kind of theological conversation, right? Can we consider for a moment, what do we mean by this? Well, we're not talking about theoretical sin. This means that wave after wave of your real sins, literally the sins that you committed this morning, the sins that you committed this week, wave after wave of your real sins, of my sins, were being poured over Christ's sinless soul. Jesus, who had done nothing wrong, was drowning now in every sin that you and I have or will ever commit. Like some of us know, right? Some of us know the type of anger and hatred that has come out of our mouth to friends, to our spouse, to our children. The type of anger and hatred that has come out of our mouth. If somebody were to see that or to hear that, they would be shocked. 
or all the evil and, and unmentionable things that we have committed with our hands, if someone were to see that, they would be shocked. Or the type of destructive bitterness and hatred that can exist in our hearts, if somebody could peek in for a moment and see it, they would be shocked. Or even the vile and wicked things that we have seen with our own eyes and has even taken pleasure in. If they were able to see the things that we have seen, they would be shocked. You see, our sins, our real sins were really placed on Jesus. We were the ones who committed these sins and yet he would be the one who would be held responsible for these sins. So much so that he would even experience the, the guilt and the burden that comes along with our sins. Would you hear that? Would you consider that for a moment? You know, as Christians, we know something about the guilt and the anguish that comes along with our sin, right? When we're in sin, the guilt that we feel because of our sin can feel suffocating. It can feel like a, a weight that's on our chest, pressing down on us. We, we don't even know how to respond to it because the heavy hand of the Lord is on us when we are in sin, it makes us walk around with the sense that something is right. Something is not right about our lives. When we're in sin, we can't just uh, brush it off. We, it, it consumes us. It consumes our hearts and it consumes our lives. And the thing is, the more we grow in holiness, the more we tend to sense this sort of thing, right? The more we grow in our holiness, the more we become aware of our sin and we're aware of our guilt, well, then would you imagine for a moment what it would be like for Jesus? You see, Jesus wasn't growing in holiness. Jesus was already perfectly holy. He hated sin with his entire being. He hated sin with his entire being. So then what would it feel like for him to feel the, the guilt of your sin? Or what would it be like for him to feel the weight of your sin? And not only does he experience this for a few things, no, he experiences this a million times over for every one of our sins. Consider that. You know, we can't even bear the, the guilt and the weight of our own sins. It's overwhelming. So what would it be like for one man to bear the guilt and the weight of the entire world's sin? What is that like? How do we even explain that? How do we even understand that moment? You see, Jesus had done nothing wrong, but he was being crushed by the overwhelming guilt and burden of a million sins. But it's not just that. You see, in this moment, in this moment Jesus doesn't just bear our sin. He also bears the wrath for our sins. If you remember a few weeks ago, it's the very thing that Jesus was praying against in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember, he was pleading with his father. He was pleading with his father. He's saying, Father, if it's possible, would you take this, this cup away from me, right? Let it pass. The cup that Jesus was talking about is the, the cup of God's wrath, the punishment that all sins deserve. You see, ever since Genesis chapter 3, God has been filling up this cup with wrath, with wrath for every sin that has been committed. And because God is holy, he hates all sin, right? And in his holiness, he has determined that all sin is worthy of his righteous anger and wrath. Now listen, you and I, we're actually sinful, right? We're sinful. And so our anger, when we are angry about sin, is hardly righteous. 
But even we know what it looks like to be angered by sin. We know what it looks like to be angered by sin. For example, back in December, I remember hearing the story of, of a little girl. Her name was Grace Parker, who lives close to us. She lived in Horsham. She lives close to many of you as well. Uh, her name was Grace Parker, and it was reported that 14-year-old Grace was sexually assaulted by her mom's boyfriend while her mom was standing there watching. And that after this man had did what he had done, the mom and the man strangled Grace until she lost her life. And after they strangled her and she was lying there dead, they decided to dismember her body and then to throw her into the woods. When I first read that report of what happened, I literally felt sick to my stomach. And if I were to be honest, I wanted to destroy those two people. If I could have five minutes with them. I wanted to destroy them. You're just hearing a summary of what I just said, but I'm sure that you feel the same way too. But you see, don't you see that only certain sins make us feel that way? Right? Only certain sins can make us feel repulsed or, or infuriates us. But unlike us, God is completely holy. And God is absolutely repulsed and infuriated by all sin. He considers all sin worthy of punishment and wrath. And so on the cross, that's exactly what he does. You know that feeling of anger and fury that you feel for Grace Parker's story? That, a million times over, with infinite more amounts of intensity, was carried out on Jesus. The wrath that every one of our sins deserve, the cup of God's wrath is given to the Son, and it says that Jesus consumes it down to the last drop until God's fury and anger is made complete. Could you imagine what is the extent of his anger and fury for sin? What did that entail? What did that look like? Jesus knows because all of it was placed on him. And he took it until, his, until God's anger and fury was complete and satisfied. And here's the thing. Jesus bears our sin, and he does. And he bears our wrath. He does that. But not only that, he goes through all of it alone. For in that moment, he was forsaken and abandoned by God. You know, a few years ago, I had gone whitewater rafting with a bunch of friends. And I had gone whitewater rafting a dozen times before that, so I was not new to it. But this trip would actually feel a little bit different, right? So we were on the water, we were in the boat, and we were coming around a certain bend. And as we were coming around a certain bend, there was a humongous rock in right in front of us. Now, we were going really fast, and so there was no way for us to sort of navigate around this rock. We saw that it was coming, but there was no way for us to escape it. And so without fail, we go and we crash right into this rock, right? And I was sitting on the edge, right? And so I was sitting on the edge, and I fell out of the boat, and I fell into the water. And I fell in a weird way when I did, because when I fell, I was now stuck actually underneath this boat, but this boat was actually pressed up against this rock, and so the boat is stuck, and I'm stuck underneath it, and both of it couldn't be maneuvered out, 
right? And so I, I remember feeling this, and I was trying to stay calm, and, and, you know, and I know how to swim, but when thousands of gallons of water are pressing up against you, it doesn't even matter whether you know how to swim, right? You're kind of just taking this in. So I was trying to stay calm, but I was taking in a lot of water in that moment, and I remember this moment so clearly. I, I knew that I needed to do something, right? So I, I decided that I was going to try to hold my breath and go underwater for a few seconds and then try with all my might to try to push out and push my hand out so that somebody would have just grabbed me, right? And so I did that, and I did that three times, and no one grabbed my hand. And I remember genuinely thinking in that moment, I remember clearly, I remember thinking, this is it, right? I really thought I was about to die. And can I tell you, I have never felt more alone than in that moment. It's sort of hard for me to even describe, to, to do justice to what I was feeling through using words, but I never felt more alone than in that moment. As I'm drowning under the weight of those waves, I felt this sense of loneliness that was so indescribable. And just as I was about to just call it quits, somebody grabs my shirt and he pulls me up into the boat again. But you see, for Jesus... It would be like he was drowning under the weight of a thousand gallons of water, under the crashing waves of guilt and wrath for our sins. But nobody reaches out for him. No one would come to his rescue. Not even the father. You see, he doesn't just feel abandoned or forsaken in that moment. He actually was abandoned and forsaken by God in his darkest hour. Jesus, who had done nothing wrong. He was left to face that horrific moment all alone. And you wonder if, if that reality, if, if that reality of, of being abandoned in that moment is what finally pushed him over. Because you see, after three hours of being in the dark, not saying a single word, Jesus finally screams out with a loud voice in verse 34. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why didn't you come for me? Why didn't you rescue me? As I was drowning under the, the gallon, the weight of a, a thousand sins, a million sins, why didn't you come for me? You see, he was quoting Psalm 22, 1. And what we need to understand is that Jesus, at that moment, he had never even known even a millisecond of separation from the Father. And in that moment, he was feeling the indescribable pain of being completely forsaken. You see, no one, no one while on earth, not even Nero or Hitler or the worst person that you can possibly think of, has ever known the horror of being completely cut off from God. No one. No one except Christ. And it's so overwhelming that Jesus can't help but scream out in a loud voice. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, John Calvin explained that moment in this way. He said this, he said, Jesus expressed this horror of great darkness, this God-forsakenness, by quoting the only verse of Scripture which could actually describe it. 
how else can you put into words the, the sense of abandonment, the sense of loneliness that he's feeling in that moment? In his darkest hour, Jesus was forsaken by God. And you see, this was always plan A. This was always plan A. This was not an afterthought. This was always God's will. Isaiah 53 says, it was the will of God. It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. It was the will to put him to grief. Was it because God hated Jesus that much? Not in the least bit. It was because he loves us that much. You see, there was no way for us to rescue, to be rescued from God's wrath without abandoning Jesus to it. There was no way that God could rescue us from God's wrath without abandoning Jesus to it. Well, right about that time, the text says that the darkness begins to lift. And as, as, as those who were around Jesus heard his cry, they begin to respond. Look at verse 35 and 36. It says, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with, with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And it was hard to tell what exactly is happening in this moment. Maybe the bystanders do feel sympathy, right? And maybe they, some scholars say, they, maybe they un- misunderstood what Jesus was saying when he screamed out, Eloi, Eloi. Maybe they heard it as him calling out for Elijah. Because you see, in the Old Testament, there was this understanding that Elijah would come and, and rescue the righteous and the innocent in their moment. And it says that they even give him wine to keep him long enough, keep him alive long enough to see if Elijah would actually come. So maybe there was somebody who was feeling sympathetic. Or maybe it's just more of the same. That after three hours of being in darkness, when when the lights are finally turned back on, they just continue in their mockery. They just continue ridiculing Jesus as they were before. We're not really sure, but it almost doesn't matter. Because while they were waiting, in verse 37 it says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. In order for us to know what this loud cry is, we have to turn to the other gospels. So listen to how the other gospel writers explain this moment. In Luke it says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Or or listen to how John, the gospel writer, says it. He says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What do we learn from this? Well, first, we got to understand Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. Would you realize that? Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. He willingly gave it up. He he didn't slowly fade away like a, a crucified person normally would in those circumstances. No, he willingly gave up his life in his own strength, with strength in that moment. He screamed out with strength. A crucified person would not do that. It's what he said in John chapter 10. He said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Would you hear that? No one robbed Jesus of his life. He laid it down. He willingly laid it down so that he could pick it up again on his own accord. Second, would you understand that Jesus declared that the work that he came to do, it was finished. 
it was accomplished. You see, the Son of Man came to serve and to give his, li his life as a ransom for many. And in this moment, he did. God sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in this moment, he has. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in this moment, he does. Do you question it? He does. All these things and so much more were accomplished as Jesus took his last breath. His work was finally finished. The main event was finally done. In fact, God wants to emphatically show the completion of Christ's work, and he does so in verse 38. Look what it says. It says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top down to the bottom. You see, a moment, a moment after Christ dies, this curtain that's in the temple was torn in two from the top all the way down to the bottom. You see, in the Old Testament, the temple was considered where the presence of God would be found, right? In fact, it wasn't just the temple in general. It was a, a specific place called the, the Holy of Holies. That's where God's presence would be found. And, and the Holy of Holies was surrounded by this curtain. And you see, when people came to the temple, they couldn't just go into the Holy of Holies, Right? In fact, only one person, the, the, the high priest, was able to go into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and he was able to do that just one time a year. Right? People couldn't just walk in whenever they wanted to. But do you hear that now, in this moment, when Christ gave up his life and it was finished, that curtain that surrounded the Holy of Holies... That curtain that was 60 feet high, they say, and, and 30 feet wide and, and 4 inches thick, that curtain was torn in two. Torn from the top to the bottom, so there would be no confusion who did it. God tore that curtain from the top to the bottom. Why? What was it supposed to mean? The author of Hebrews tells us. Listen to what the author says. He says, Therefore, brothers... Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us, opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest, Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and a full assurance of faith. What is the author saying here? He's saying that though sin had once blocked us off so that we couldn't even enter the temple, the presence of God, Jesus' death on the cross has now provided a way for us to freely come to him. It's what we sing all the time, right? Boldly I approach your throne. Blameless now I'm running home. By your blood I come. Welcomed as your own into the arms of majesty. You see, you and I, we can enjoy personal and intimate, regular fellowship with God because of the work that Jesus had done on the cross. We, we who should have been drowning under the weight of our own sin, of the guilt and the wrath of God, are now able to boldly approach him, stand before God's presence, enjoy fellowship with him anytime we want, even the high priest could only go in once a year. We can go in in this moment and stand before this holy God, though our sins make us wicked. 
Brothers and sisters, as we mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, as we gaze upon the cross of Christ, we can only approach this moment in, in one of two ways, right? This can just be another shot in the arm and, and that has no or very little effect on our lives and on our faith. Or we can ask God to give us eyes so that we can see that we are standing before the Grand Canyon. We have just witnessed the main event because you see, it's the very thing that God does for the centurion who's standing before Christ. Listen to verse 39. It says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. I, I hope you understand the significance of this moment. You see, this was a, a Roman centurion, right? This wasn't one of his disciples, it wasn't a Jew, one of his own people. This was a Roman centurion, and this was sort of his job. This is what he punched in for and, and punched out with. Every, this, he's seen a hundred people die on the cross uh, every day. Or, or so often, he had become desensitized to the cross, if you will. But you see, this death was different for him. Because he would actually make, he would actually, it would actually make him the first human being to call Jesus the Son of God. Consider that. It wasn't one of his disciples. It wasn't one of the Jews, his own people. It would be a Roman centurion who made a living out of putting people on the cross. He would be the one, the first one to call Jesus the Son of God. In fact, it would be the very first time we hear that same title, Son of God, being, being said before, uh, since Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It was in the first verse of this book that we heard, Son of God, and this is the first time we hear it again, and it's from the mouth of a Roman centurion. And the question is, how did that happen? Because he fixed his eyes on Jesus, and he saw the way that he died, and he was convinced. We're not really sure what did it. Maybe it was the darkness. Maybe it was his last words. Maybe the strength that he displayed even until the last moment. Whatever it was, there was no room for this centurion to stand before the crucified Christ and to be indifferent. There was no way. And you see, that's true for us as well. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, would you see the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice for you? Would you see the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice for you? Would you love Christ so much that you would hate your sin? Sin killed your Savior. Would you become a friend to it? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. He said, if I had a dear brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I valued the knife which had been crimsoned with his blood? If I made a friend of the murderer who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? Brother, sister, if you're here this morning and you're living sort of indifferent towards sin, or maybe you're living in partnership with sin, you're actively living in sin, would you allow your gaze at the cross this morning to lead you to repent? You must, you must hate your sin. You must hate your sin because it's the very thing that pierced the heart of your Savior. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, 
I just have one word of invitation to you this morning. I want to invite you to come and to escape the wrath of God for your sins. I want to invite you to come and escape the wrath of God for your sins that you deserve. That you deserve and I deserve. All sin must be punished. But Christ, in amazing love for you, has provided a way for you to be saved from his wrath. See, through his abandonment, you are offered rescue. And through his wrath, you are offered forgiveness. And through his death, you are offered life. And so would you see that Jesus truly is the Son of God, just like the centurion Saul in that moment as he gazed upon the cross? And would you place your trust in him today?